if you put 2.5 bars of pressure at your turbo at sea level, it's fine. But you put 2.5 bars at Pike's Peak and your turbo has to spin an extra 100,000 RPM to create that pressure. That's where we added turbo speed sensors on all the turbos. <laughs> Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we've got Greg Wah joining us from Box Air in the USA. Uh, Greg is originally from France, but has been based in the US for the last 10 years, running his business, Box Air. It's got an interesting background in that Boxier actually was developed around providing a V-dub turbo diesel upgrade in power for the Volkswagen Vanagon, sort of a overlanding vehicle. So probably not something that a lot of listeners to this podcast would necessarily be familiar with. However, more relevant to our interest is Greg's exploits at Pike's Peak, basically running at the very front of the diesel field. In fact, only narrowly missing out on the diesel record up Pike's Peak, which is something he is seeking to put right in the 2022 to running of the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, also coincidentally the 100th running of that hill climb. Now traditionally when we think of diesel performance, we're probably not really thinking of top tier race cars, maybe outside of diesel's use in the likes of sled pulling competition and that sort of thing. However, the diesel performance engine industry is massive and it is possible to get some exceptional gains in power out of these engines. There's obviously the potential to upgrade the engine internals to cope with additional power, just like we were would normally be used to with a gasoline based engine however in Greg's application he's actually found a specific VW model of engine and he is working very hard to make more power significantly more power while staying within the realms of what the factory internal components are capable of handling. He's also utilising some reasonably advanced technology to help him in this aim such as in-cylinder combustion pressure monitoring. Now before we get in to our interview with Greg. If you haven't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune EFI systems, both factory and aftermarket, on both gasoline and diesel engines. We also cover performance engine building, building your own wiring harness, as well as race driver education, race car setup, and how to use data analysis to improve your own performance. Obviously with a diesel focused podcast today relevant to our podcast episode we've got our diesel fundamentals course, our diesel tuning fundamentals course and also our practical diesel tuning course which will teach you everything you need to know when it comes to extracting more performance with a tune out of your diesel engine and particularly this is an area I know a lot of existing tuners struggle with particularly if you have come from the gasoline tuning world. Everything we really know about improving performance when it comes to the tune in a gasoline engine kind of really goes out the window with diesel engines. They operate on a very different process, the compression, ignition, combustion process and everything we need to understand is very specific to that process. I'll put a link in the show notes to both of those courses and as a podcast listener you can also use the coupon code PODCAST75, that'll get you $75 off the purchase of 
your very first HPA course. All right, enough of an introduction though, let's get into our chat with Greg now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks for joining us today. Now, when most people think of diesel engines, they're probably getting an image of a big old heavy truck chugging away up a hill, belching out plumes of black smoke, which is about as far away from performance as you could probably get. Now, yes, of course, there is a fairly wide market for performance diesel engines, which we're going to jump into. But when you're looking at your options of modifying gasoline engines or diesel engines, what was it that made you jump down the diesel route? I started with diesel because I was using this on my business. So it was a an engine of choice for uh, being more efficient. Um, and as as I choose this engine for my business, I had to stick with this for my performance options. And it was actually a pretty good base. <laughs> okay. Let, let's come back to that. You, you you just mentioned your business. So this is Boxair, I'm assuming you're talking about? Right. Okay. Can you give us a, a quick rundown on what Boxair is and, and what services you provide? Yes. So I offer uh, engine transplants for the Volkswagen bus community. Uh, so mostly uh, vo- Volkswagen buses from the 80s uh, to like, so 80 to 92, all those water-cooled engines or gasoline, and they are rear engine vehicles. So I'm, I created this uh, uh, kit, conversion kit that, um, replaces the original vehicle, uh, engine. And essentially it turns, uh, the power up, uh, mileage as much, a double the mileage. And, um, so that, that is, that is what I do for the business box here. Okay. So that, that's a fairly niche market. And we're talking here for those who, who aren't maybe familiar with, with that particular vehicle. It's not, uh, this isn't a performance vehicle, is it? We're talking about uh, sort of an overlander type vehicle. And I know you've had your own uh, fairly extensive experience uh, traveling around in one of these. So how on earth do you decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to build an engine conversion for this uh, fairly niche vehicle. So when I moved from France to the USA in 2010, I, I didn't know the the Volkswagen bus were here in the US. I mean, those models, they are the Vanagons, and I was very uh, shocked to see them. So I I met a guy actually on the parking lot on a grocery store. He had this beautiful Vanagon, and I leaned down and see this Subaru engine. So I I was amazed by seeing an old vehicle with a newer engine. This is the things that you don't see in France. <clears throat> so I started to chat with the guy and turns out there's a huge community of swap in the US. And that's where I put the relationship because I did a swap in France, but it was a diesel swap. So it, it, it was like, it's not a huge swap. It's just the same block in France. It's the same block, but updated turbos and everything. But here in America, it's a whole different engine. So I was like, oh, <laughs> there's a big opportunity here to put whatever engine in the van. And I did a search and really coming from France, where we have 80% of the vehicles diesel, um, I was surprised in the USA, there was none of those diesel swaps, really. A few guys did uh, TDIs, but not very well done, kind of homemade, no, not super pro. 
Okay, so basically the solution to improve the power and efficiency of that particular vehicle, uh, better mileage, etc. Not strictly with the aim of, of improving performance, but that's as an aside, is that sort of a, a reasonable summary of why you've, you're providing this solution? Right. Okay. And availability. It was just a, a very abundant engine in the USA, so it was perfect sure. too. Let's jump back a, a little bit. As you mentioned, you and probably most people are getting the idea from your accent. You, you're originally born and bred in France before moving to the US. What's your sort of background in terms of your your training? How how did you get into building and modifying engines? Uh, I got out of school. I was 14, and I started to do uh, technical school. So from 14 to 21. I was doing uh, internships on and off. So in France, there there are those programs where you go two weeks in technical school and two weeks in your working place. Uh, I wanted to do mechanic back then, but they they said there were on, only room for body work available spot for this. So I, I decided to to go for it, and body work ended up being a a passion where I had no idea what it was first. But I, I really got uh, connected to working the metal, like welding. I learned how to weld, how to like expand metal, retract metal, make shapes uh, from blank piece of metal, <laughs> sheet metal. Okay. So this is a little beyond just, uh, how would we put it, uh, panel beating, repair work. This is actually making body work from scratch, just from a, a flat sheet of metal. Is that is that what I'm getting from you? Yes. So in France, there is those restoration uh, because those old vehicles, let's say the horses are pulling the, I don't know how you call this. Uh, so these need restoration, like this piece that doesn't even exist. And so we made those, you know. In France, there are schools that maintain those crafting. So as I did that. It was interesting. I'm, I'm guessing those skills are, are really just about extinct these days. Would that be fair to say? Not a lot of people really passing on that knowledge like they used to. I I, I would say that my teachers were in the 60s, like very close to their retirement. And I believe those were the last one from this generation of old old stuff. And the new teacher was a new generation of kids probably had like the more modern plastic fenders, how to unclip <laughs> the clips, the plastic clips without damaging them. And I don't know what not. <laughs> how to order a new part from the manufacturer <laughs> yeah. when it's dented, basically. Right. All right. Let, let's talk about how you move from bodywork into uh, engine performance, though, because those really are two worlds apart and not a lot of uh, sort of cross-pollination between the two. So yeah, we, how, did, how did that all go down? So actually, uh, it's, it's funny, but in order for me to go to this technical school, I was using a moped. And when I had to get a moped to go to school, I, I, I grabbed one that was like completely modified, <laughs> had big carbs, uh, ignition system, pipes. And so I had to learn uh, to maintain this thing running. And it was very, it was a very uh, huge learning curve. So uh, I did a lot of two-stroke performance engine. Uh, right at 14, we had a big bore kit. Uh, we had to tinker with ignition timing. So <laughs> we seized a lot of cylinders. We <laughs> we broke, <laughs> we bent a lot of crank. Uh, so 
I guess it started there uh, more than anything. And I was lucky enough to know some important people in the south of France that were doing racing, like Polini brand. Um, one of the Polini Montiore distributor was 30 minutes from my house and we had a relationship. So I saw the guy like tuning those two stroke on a dyno. I was like, whoa, there's a dyno for these things. And from the very early age, just see that performance was possible to, do, uh, to achieve and there was a way to do it properly. Okay, so how how did that sort of transition into some formal uh, qualifications? Uh, you know, what what were you taught around engines from a trade school versus what you actually learned yourself? No, I'll, actually, I'll clarify that question a little bit. One of the the sort of areas with performance engine building that differs from uh, the likes of maybe just reconditioning a everyday road car engine is the the sort of the components that we're going to be using uh, the clearances and tolerances that we work to etc the this subtle but really important differences so what I'm getting at with this is a lot of people who maybe have gone through a formal qualification in a trade school to learn how to recondition engines, uh, they they may do a great job at rebuilding factory engines but that doesn't necessarily translate across to being able to take a, a stock engine that produced let's say 200 horsepower and modify that to the point where it's making four or 500 horsepower reliably at a significantly higher RPM range so I'm interested to know how you developed that specific skill set I think it, it was it started with spike speak so in in 2013 I, I built this Subaru diesel that was a two liter a four-cylinder boxer diesel like super rare, super new engine. And um, I had no uh, notion of diesel engine tuning back then. I was diving into it. And I ran into uh, this guy, Andrew Stauffer, which is a super well-known guy in the diesel world. Uh, he owns uh, SNS Diesel in Indiana, which is the most important a diesel uh, tuning and preparation place in the USA. I ran into him and he was tuning those those engines, uh, the two liter for a, a program. It was a military program. And so I was providing the engine and so this, this, we crossed path and <laughs> that's all how it started. Let, let's just come back one step. So you, you decided to compete at Pikes Peak and you decided out of all of the engines that are available the Boxer Diesel Subaru was your pick. What what made you choose that engine? Um, so I was using this in my vans. That, that's okay. A, that's a right. B- so it's it's just a carryover from from the vans. Yeah. So because those vans you were doing Subaru and the uh, Volkswagen Audi TDI engines, is that correct? Right. I started okay. with the Subaru Diesel uh, back right. in the days. Okay, just I just wanted to to clarify that because that seems without a little bit more background information, like maybe a bit of an obscure pick. So I just wanted to clear that up. Right. All right. So so this uh, Subaru two liter boxer diesel engine, stock form. What what sort of power are we talking? Uh, factory would make one fifty horse. And what did you end up doing to it, and and where did it sort of end up power wise? Well, so that's that was the sad thing about this engine. That's why we stopped. Um, we could only get 175 out of this thing. Any drop of 
extra diesel in there or extra boost will crack the cylinder. The cylinder were completely floating, so not a, not exactly a closed deck. There were a few modifications to do to get to 200 horse, but it wasn't worth it at the end of the day. Uh, so actually, we had 175 horse, but at Pike's Peak, we dynoed it, and it was barely making a 98 horsepower. <laughs> <laughs> so it was in 2013. That was my first uh, diving into the tuning experience. So I, I assume that the low power output at Pikes Peak is simply a result of the, the altitude and the low barometric air pressure? Exactly. It was shocking. So I can only imagine that that would have been a um, maybe somewhat boring drive up the hill. So we, it was raining and hailing. Oh yeah, so, that'll make it more interesting. Right. So I had a, quite a run. It was actually properly a safe power to have for the hail <laughs> and the rain. And being a rookie, uh, so I quite enjoyed the drive. It, it, we did it in 14 minutes uh, and, and some. It was okay, you know. A lot of people didn't finish it. A lot of people didn't make it that far and didn't make it to the top. So we were pretty pumped uh, to do that run. I, I've, I've been to Pikes Peak. I've been lucky enough to be to Pikes Peak uh, supporting a car a, a couple of years in a row, and uh, I can attest to the weather there being very brutal and very changeable and uh yeah the number of cars with hail damage from hail the size of 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 uh golf balls it's it's quite an eye opener so yeah there's um no discredit in in getting a car to the finish line in the sort of weather i've seen there so Hey, what you're saying there as well with that Subaru engine, it's obviously every engine from the manufacturer is designed around a particular power level and obviously they're going to be safe and reliable at that stock power level. Most often we see, let's say the block for example, will have a quite a high sort of over-engineered safety factor. So when we want to maybe in- increase you know, the power level by 20, 30, 50% even, uh, typically the block's going to be up to that. So this is quite unique in that basically what you're saying is that Subaru block without significant modifications and, and a lot of money obviously being thrown at it, the block is almost at its limit even in stock form at 150 horsepower. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So from, from there with the, the Subaru, did you decide to essentially shelve that project and move on to a different engine with a little bit more potential yeah so it was very unlucky but they decided to unlucky and lucky at the same time they decided to stop producing this engine in 2015 this the japan the japanese were were done with this engine so i had to change to an available engine for my business because i make those kits you know every week i have to send a kit to a customer and so I swapped to the TDI. And that, <laughs> that was a whole different story. Like the TDI is like a Cummins engine. It's like a cast block that can take all the power you throw at it. And, and this uh, made a whole uh, new, new pot- potential for performance. Now talk to us uh, about um, the, the TDI engine in terms of, of stock form. We're talking two liter four cylinder what sort of power level do they produce in, in the factory format? Uh, they, they like to be around 200 horsepower from factory. Um, they push it in Europe in a particular uh, nice sedan to 240 horsepower out of the 2 liter. 
which is huge. Okay. It's the most powerful two-liter uh, diesel engine production. So what are the, the limiting factors in that engine in, in stock form and when you're starting to modify one for race use, what, what needs to be changed? The first thing is the pistons to accept the cylinder pressure. Those will, the stock will, will start to melt when a modified one would hold the pressure required. Uh, second, I'd say the rods. Rods and bearings. Okay. So just not strong enough to withstand the, the cylinder pressure. And then, as you mentioned, the pistons can't withstand the, the temperature that they're being subjected to as well. Right. It's a balance, right, For from the exhaust uh, temperature or cylinder pressure. you got to choose and put too much timing, <laughs> send it to cylinder pressure and uh, not enough uh, into the exhaust. So EGTs will, will be uh, saving, you know, the cylinder pressure a little bit. All right. We'll come and talk about some of the tuning aspects in a second. In terms of aftermarket parts for these TDI engines, is this well supported by mainstream manufacturers or did you have to go and have components made? So at first I had a a model of an engine that was pretty well supported. You could get rods made and pistons, um, injectors, valves, cams, everything you wanted. But those engines were getting outdated. So the, the best common rail technology available was a 2017 out of the Tiguan or uh, TDI, 240-horse stock. And this engine actually had, from factory, ported, ported heads, huge valves, huge cams with more left than any other TDI aftermarket, uh, remelted pistons, treatment, big rods, everything was much stronger from factory than the aftermarket. So even the, the, the studs out of this uh, 2017 were the ARP studs, <laughs> which was incredible. All in the factory format. Yeah. Like the, the, wow. yeah, yeah. So uh, I decided to go with this engine because I had, I had the built engine, the cams and everything, but everything was just not perfect. Where, where that one came from the factory absolutely dialed in. So I started sure. with that. So 240 horsepower stock, what's the sort of power limitation that you found with reliability on, on that Tiguan engine? So the tuners with, that do the stage things, uh, stage one, stage two, they were making 305 horse from factory, which is pretty huge for two liter TDI. And I took that engine and pushed it to we do four hundred and and forty horse, which is uh, still still with inf- exactly factory trim. Few mods, but okay, uh, like the injectors and the full standard. Sorry, yeah, I, I'm talking more about the, Internal, the engine yeah. long block itself right. is still the factory componentry. Yes. Hundred and ten horsepower per cylinder. That's uh, yeah, that's exceptional. One of the the aspects with diesel engines compared to to gas engines is you know typically the operating RPM range is significantly lower. 
you know, it's, it's not unusual for a diesel engine to have a factory rev limit of maybe four and a half thousand RPM or thereabouts. And obviously, with a conventional gas engine, we're more used to seeing rev limits in the region of sort of seven, seven and a half, maybe eight thousand RPM. And when we look at, at, at that equation for, for horsepower, it's obviously we, we take our torque, multiply that by our RPM, and then divide it by a constant. So the RPM becomes a, a really powerful multiplier and when we want to make a lot of horsepower, really what we want to do is is make torque, which is essentially just airflow at high RPM. Now, long-winded way of just talking about the physics behind this, but th- this, you know, there's problems of course with diesel engines when we want to rev them higher, they're built with a lot more rigidity and strength in the components to withstand the cylinder pressures, hence all of the components are heavier so they don't really like to rev. So long question there Greg but what I'm trying to get to is are, are you extending that factory rev limit beyond what the stock uh, rev limit is or are you just working within that normal rev range? We increased it quite significantly. We went to uh, 6,200 RPM, which is very, very high for a TDI. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the, the problems that comes with that, and this really comes down to the component sheet, we, we quite often get asked this around gasoline engines, you know, can, can I extend my rev limit by 1,000 RPM? And the answer quite often is, well, well maybe you can. But the more important aspect of that is with no other modifications, just simply revving the engine 1,000 RPM further is not necessarily going to actually result in any more power. If we look at the factory power and torque curve, the torque will be dropping away at the factory rev limit significantly. Maybe we've got our peak torque value at two, two and a half thousand RPM with a diesel engine and then it's falling away after that. So our power will continue to climb. Maybe that peak's three and a half, maybe 4,000 RPM and then falls away. So if we take that and rev it to six, we're, we're well on the, the backside of that curve. So typically getting performance at higher RPM requires some, some modifications in terms of maybe uh, a set of cams or a cam grind that is more, more sort of focused on high RPM airflow. Maybe it's going to require some some head porting and modifications as well to allow the head to flow. And then obviously the rotating assembly requires the strength to actually spin to that RPM. You, you mentioned though you're still in stock form with the engine internal. So am I right in saying you actually hadn't changed the cam profile or head porting or anything like that? No yet. Okay. And it just works. It's, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> Is it safe to assume that some of this does come from external modifications, though, in terms of uh, turbo sizing? Before this, I would say, um, so I have this combustion uh, analyzer. Uh, it's a full engine combustion al- analyzer. So it it uh, records the uh, pressure in the cylinders uh, in, in real time. This was a key to, along with, some advices from I have a good friend Chad, uh, senior calibration engineer from a, a massive uh, engine manufacturer in the U.S. So we could analyze the data and see where we could keep pushing. I mean, the, the turbo is important, yes, but having this uh, this data, such as uh, cylinder pressure, was very important. Let's talk about that cylinder pressure data. This is this is something that. Not a lot of 
tuners get access to because it is still a very expensive technology, albeit it has come down a lot over the last decade or so. Uh, it also requires uh, a little bit of work to actually fit the required sensors into the engine, but I can only imagine not having worked with one myself that uh, we can learn a lot uh, about the the engine and the tune from that data. So first of all, can you talk to us about the the sensors themselves and how how you went about fitting those into the combustion chamber? Obviously, it's a it's a fairly uh, nasty place to be putting any kind of sensor, and uh, there's also some limitations typically around how and where we can fit them. I know in gasoline engines. Uh, we can use what they call instrumented spark plugs where the sensor is actually installed into a special spark plug to, to get easy access. What, what's the sort of solution in the diesel world? So it's very easy. Uh, we get rid of the glow plugs and we have this <laughs> beautiful <laughs> we have this beautiful port. That, it's almost made for it. Yes, that actually uh, companies such as Uptrend make uh, diesel sensors that are shaped uh, based of the glow plug sensor, so they have it's like an M10 by one, same length, and you screw that thing in there. You don't have to to make anything you know, really special. Um, it's expensive, but it, it's easy for a diesel. Yeah, I, I absolutely. Just didn't even consider the the glow plug. So yeah, you've you've got some big advantages versus trying to fit them into a, a gas engine. So that makes things much much easier. So essentially, again, for those who maybe aren't sort of familiar with this this technology, it, it's a sensor that goes, as we've mentioned there, into the combustion chamber. So it's literally just monitoring at very high frequency uh, the pressure through the the full engine cycle. And that's mapped versus the the crankshaft position essentially in in the analysis software. So, what are you using that data for, and and how what what is it actually telling you? So, in the motorsports world and the diesel industry, uh, they they like to to keep a cylinder pressure uh, number. Let's say in the Dakar, I have good relationship with the, the Peugeot team. We get some numbers about what's a good uh, cylinder pressure for sustained. Um, so we compare from like the factory engine can take two hundred bars. This this uh, Tiguan RTDI, um, it's built for two hundred bars, and the racing industry standard for sustained will say two eighty is a nice number. So we we use a of course it's experimental. But we use those uh, initial numbers to start our experiments. So we go, we, we target a, a cylinder pressure number and we see how we can play with timing to please the EGT and maintain the cylinder pressure. And eventually you end up with this beautiful balance. Um, you can Keep increasing your cylinder pressure and see how long it lasts. You will not know. Let's say I set it to 350 bars and I can do 50 laps. It's going to work, but I have to open it to see if the pistons got damaged or I need to analyze. So what we did was we had a given number that was a little high, but we want to push the engine. And we had so many cycles open the engine. And we knew as a baseline that so many bars at this cylinder pressure, that EGT, that timing is perfect. Like the engine was still brand new after 100 hours of abuse. 
you, you've mentioned a few elements there that come into the the tuning. So let, let's dive into that a little bit. And I think before we do, we probably just need to have a, a real basic sort of high level understanding of, of diesel engine operation. And yeah, I, I think having gone through this myself, spending my whole life basically tuning gasoline engines, when you transition across to diesel tuning, basically almost everything you've learned goes out the window and you have to to unlearn that and and understand the operation of the diesel. And I mean, obviously the the the, the predominant thing here is that we're we're dealing with a compression ignition engine where there is no spark plug. Uh, so so we don't have ignition timing or spark timing like we do in uh, a gas engine but instead in a very similar way what we've got is injection timing and we've got a very high compression ratio typically in the diesel engine that's designed to create heat in the combustion chamber and then with a common rail diesel engine we, we inject the fuel relatively close to TDC where there's a huge amount of heat being produced by that compressed air. There's a bit of a delay and then the fuel and air will mix and start to combust just due to the heat. So that's the compression ignition element. So we've got, instead of spark timing, we've got injection timing. So which, in, in essence, does define where the burn is going to begin. Uh, we've also got fuel pressure, which is very critical. And then we've got the fuel quantity or fuel mass, uh, which is it has a big driver on, on power. So I mean... Again, from a gas engine perspective, really what what makes the power is how much air we can cram into the engine, and we really have to keep our air-fuel ratio across a a relatively narrow range to keep the engine happy and make good power. With the diesel engine, it works really almost the opposite way. We're actually controlling the power with the amount of fuel we're injecting, which is why typically we don't have a throttle body in the diesel engine. It'll quite happily combust exceptionally lean air-fuel ratios with no problem, so we're always operating or predominantly operating with a diesel engine on the lean side of, of stoic and as we add more fuel we make more power but of course the, there is a limit to this because as we add fuel we end up with more combustion chamber temperature as well and that puts more heat into the parts which you've alluded to. Now we don't typically get the opportunity though unfortunately to measure directly what's happening inside the cylinder so in the diesel tuning world the exhaust gas temperature or EGT sense has kind of been the, the gold standard in sort of monitoring the quality of our tune-up. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you use that EGT sensor and what it's telling you? So the EGT sensor is basically giving me a, a number that ensure I'm not damaging the turbo uh, componentry. Like let's say the EFR turbo is capable of 950C. Uh, after that, you might start to melt some stuff. So we, we draw a line there. We don't want to go over that. So the EGT, essentially, we're trying to keep it as low as possible. Uh, of course, we try to increase our cooling capacity at the intercooler side. But the EGT, we, we like it when, when we max it out, but not over. So uh, for us, we're 950. It's almost a melting point. And uh, how do I use it? We can play with the timing, of course. If we get too close to cylinder pressure limit, uh, we balance on the EGT. If we exceed the EGT uh, limit, 
we have to send back to a, a cylinder pressure. If we exceeded cylinder pressure, we have to reduce fuel. It, it's just a closed loop, essentially. So AGT, cylinder pressure, and then you're adjusting your tuning parameters around maintaining or or not exceeding your your preferred limits for both of those parameters. Right, and timing. So we try to optimize EGT and cylinder pressure and timing together. And if if we exceed, we have to lower fuel. That's that's the rule. You have to keep keep the limits you know happy. Now you, you've you've mentioned there the sort of temperature limit of the turbine turbine wheel turbine housing nine fifty degrees C which seventeen fifty F if my math is is about right uh, that that's only one element though we've also got the internal components of the engine to to consider and at very high EGTs again we're, we're essentially we're measuring exhaust gas temperature which has a correlation to the combustion temperature which is what the the piston and the cylinder head are being exposed to. Uh, 1740-1750 degrees Fahrenheit sounds exceptionally high to me for a diesel engine in terms of of keeping those internal parts uh, internal and and intact. Is that not an issue? You're you're quite happy running sort of 1750 Fahrenheit uh, and and not worrying about your internal componentry? So these are worries uh, that people have when they don't have the cylinder pressure data. But the heat generated by the cylinder pressure is exhausted. Essentially, the cylinder pressure is a relationship of, of the heat. So when we have a 280 bar, let's say, cylinder pressure limit, this translates into a heat number that is a combustion chamber heat number. Um, we're not exceeding that, which is what the valves can sustain. As soon as it exits the valve, it's all turbo. It's all about your hardware limits. Um, for us, we know that we're not exceeding the cylinder pressure that is possible to operate uh, for 100 hours. We're happy with that number. And we also know that we don't exceed the limit on the hardware uh, turbos. So I see what you mean for the internal temperatures, but for diesel engine with controlled cylinder pressure, uh, we we know exactly where we're at, and and that's how we do it in the diesel world. One of the inputs that we rely on heavily in the gasoline tuning world is air fuel ratio, and and much less so on exhaust gas temperature. Uh, to the point that you know, EGT outside of high level drag racing is probably not very common on gas engines. Air fuel ratio, we've got that on on every engine we tune. Now with diesel, there's also a relationship between uh, the combustion temperature, combustion pressure, obviously, uh, exhaust gas temperature, and the air fuel ratio. So, are are you utilising air fuel ratio at all in your tuning, or not necessary given the other inputs, including combustion pressure, that you are focusing on so heavily? So we we do have a wideband uh, lambda, uh, and we use it. So we talk in richness. So we like to stay around like 900. Um, it's, it's just a, a number that we like. It has a little black smoke, but just a very slight one. And uh, it's usually clean. Like if we could keep it at 850 uh, richness, we would be crystal clear. But we like to add a little bit to just because we don't we don't want to be too lean. Then we would just throw power out of the window. 
Instead, we want to add a touch extra. So those numbers that you just mentioned, they're 908.50s. So how, how are those relating to uh, Lambda or the Lambda scale? I'm not quite sure I follow there. So I'm using this uh, French ECU and uh, its richness unit. It's uh, okay. 1 over Lambda. So essentially... Oh, okay. Equivalence ratio. 1 over Lambda. So we, we just it's just a little reversed, but... Once you get, once you set on a number, you stick to it. But essentially, yeah. I would say it's, it's equivalent to yeah, an AFR, uh, an AFR that you know the tuner likes to have on their gasoline, okay. like a, a fourteen. Or... And, and we we are talking. I mentioned there earlier when we were just talking about the basics of, of diesel tuning. The the different part is that we are operating on the the lean side of of stoic. When we're tuning a gasoline engine, if if we've got high uh, exhaust gas temperature, com- high combustion temperature, uh, we can cool that combustion temperature by adding fuel. But the sort of because we're on the lean side of stoic with the diesel engines, it's actually the opposite. If we add fuel, we actually add temperature, correct? Yes. And no, also you can add more fuel in a shorter amount of time and reduce temperature. Sure. Okay. Just talking about how you're actually getting that fuel, where you're getting that fuel into the, the combustion chamber. Right. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the ECU that you're using. You just mentioned you've you've got a French ECU in there. Uh, uh, the diesel tuning world is is a little unique in that there's not too many options available for uh, aftermarket standalones. A lot of the the tuning is done with reflashing. Uh, am I right in assuming that this unit that you're referring to is a standalone? Yep, standalone ECU. Um... Reach out to them and turned out they equip all the, the best European Dakar rigs, like all the best, all the best uh, Baja uh, diesel racing happening in Portugal and in Spain and France is equipped with that ECU. So I was like, oh, okay, it's legit. They have no social media, like the website <laughs> is like 50 years old. And I cannot believe that, but we're about to help them a little bit. What's the, uh, what's the brand? So it's called Skynam. Okay. I think we'll put that in the show notes. Actually, Skynam is the diesel name, but the actual name is a Seabell. Seabell, S-Y-B-E-L-E. So what was involved with getting your engine up and running on that particular ECU? Were, Were they able to support you or you have to kind of figure all that out for yourself? Well, so that helped that I was French. I got in touch with the owner of the company and he helped me set it up, the basics. So, you know, sync, crank, and cam. That's the most complicated to get into the standalone. If you if you left by yourself and try to figure this one, it's hard. So he helped me with this. Then set up the basic sensors. You have to set up like coolant temperature sensor, the the rail pressure sensor, the fuel temperature sensor. So the very basic ones, right? I started in 2010 with him. So that was very a long, a long journey to get to where we are today at 110 per cylinder. So yeah, he set me up the basics and we got the engine running. And then, you know, you brake engines, brake engines and <laughs> melt pistons and learn learn the hard limits and we trashed so many engines we probably have 
a dozen of blocks around the shop just because of the standalone. Is this prior to the opportunity to have access to that insulin depression monitoring data that you were, were having issues with with braking engines? Yeah. I learned the hard, the hard way. So I, I did it mostly by myself, the training. And just like the mopeds, you know, seizing, seize, seize, replace. And so I guess I just recently had this combustion analyzer. But that's like, I almost didn't need it. I was... Uh, I was wanting it because I got good at it and wanted more control about the fine stuff. And it does help. We can, we can shave like more power out of the engine. Okay. Let's talk uh, about Pike's Peak and, and specifically the car that you have been running up to this point, your, your Beetle with this TDI engine in it. Um, which is a fairly, um, unfortunately we, we don't have the benefit of being able to, to show some pictures but we could probably uh, link some in the show notes so our listeners can get a sense of what we're talking about here. So it's a, it's a fairly uh, unique combination there. You've got a, a Volkswagen Beetle with this TDI engine in the back and also from what I understand a Porsche PDK 7 speed dual clutch transmission essentially. Is, is that about correct? Yep. How did that combination come about for a start? Why, why did you start with the base of the uh, Volkswagen Beetle? So to represent my camper company, uh, I really wanted a, an iconic vehicle. And uh, I noticed in, in Europe, they ran this uh, Volkswagen Bug as a cup. It's called the Fun Cup. It's a, Essentially, it's a race car tube chassis with a, a shape of a bug on it. Fairly light, uh, mid-engine which was a key for success. And so I pulled the trigger on one. I found the Fun Cup USA. So in 2008, they attempted to bring the Fun Cup in California and they had two two original cars. And and so I, f- I saw it in pre... So the ad was a, a, a picture of the Fun Cup that was took by the editor... And the editor posted it on Facebook before the book was published. It was back in the days where the ads were on the books, you know. Um, so I looked on Facebook, Fun Cup for sale, Fun Cup, Fun Cup, like for six months. And I see this photo. <laughs> Contact the guy. I'm like, yep. How did you know? Like what? I see the phone number on the photo. Call him. Go straight to Colorado next day. Grabs the Fun Cup. The, the book was not even published. I bought it. But so... Um, this to me was was a key to have this this mid engine, um, be, just because all the successful cars are mid engine, like you know, um, all the prototypes are mid engine, all the Dakar that race and win are mid engine, the the best Peugeot T sixteen is mid engine. So I was like, that's it. I can't argue with the I can't argue with the the mid engine aspect. You, you're a hundred percent correct there, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and again, for those who have maybe Googled the Fun Cup and, and, and have a sense of what we're talking about, uh, one obvious downside is it looks like it has the aerodynamics of uh, a brick. Uh, am I right? Yeah, it's it's pretty terrible. Like the stock, the stock Fun Cup, they use 140 horsepower engines, race it for 25 hours. I think it's fun there. Uh, and I pushed it. It's... I pushed it to so Pikes Peak 2020, all the videos in the link, they will probably represent my car when it was 200 and 
80 horse, the compound at Pikes Peak. And yeah, the, the arrow was not very good. Um, it's, it's a good car though. It was, it was great. I can't complain about that choice I made. It brought me to where I am today. I'm, I'm super happy I dived into that project. Am I right in saying that you were you were runner up in the diesel record at Pikes Peak back in is it twenty twenty to Old Smoky the uh, the truck is that is that correct? So yeah, so during that run, I lost my brakes for a minute and forty five seconds. Wow! So I I have I have it in the data. The the Plex uh, combustion analyzer has brake pressure. It has everything. And so during my run, I did a mistake where the brake fluid was been flushed and we put some like terrible brake fluid in there. Um, it wasn't like the 600. It was like some, some crap. And, and that, that hurted me on the 2020 run because I was, I was in a 10 minute club on the qualification runs. But on race day, the heat added, like it's the only time that where you can see the heat add up. And man, Pikes Peak has so much stress on the brakes that you don't even rip, you don't even duplicate that heat stress at the track. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of of unique aspects with Pikes Peak. Obviously, the altitude is one thing, and most people sort of can can get their head around the fact that at high altitude and low barometric pressure, your engine's going to make less power. That 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 that's pretty easy to understand. But the part that I think a lot of people overlook as well is that the lower air density uh, actually also affects the cooling properties of of everything on the car as well. The the oil, uh, the the coolant, and obviously airflow onto the brakes. There's there's less cooling happening there. Uh, so so that's you know. One problem that the next is that the way Pikes Peak runs as an event, you've got the the week of practice leading up to the event, but they split the hill into three sections, so you practice on one section a day, and you never actually get to do the full run from top to bottom or bottom to top uh, until till race day. So the the difference in running over a section that might be a few minutes long versus a full run that might be you know nine to eleven minutes. That's a big difference on components like the brakes, correct? Yep, that's right. Now, the interesting aspect, well, there's two interesting aspects here other than the fact that it's running a diesel engine. First of all, let's talk about the the compound turbo aspect because this isn't something we see uh, too often. And where we do see it is usually in uh, applications where uh, we're trying to run very, very high boost pressures and we're basically outside of the the efficiency of a single compressor. So we can sort of compound the turbos and basically get a multiplication effect for the boost pressure, keep both of the turbos operating within the efficiency uh, of their compressor maps. What was the impetus behind compounding for you? Because it doesn't sound like you're really stretching the boost limits or boost capability of the turbo. That's true. Uh, we, we keep it pretty pretty chill right now, but we're about to crank it up. So we kept blowing turbos in 2019 and 2018, single turbos. And we, we didn't know. You know. It was a learning curve that if you put 2.5 bars of pressure at your turbo <laughs> at sea level, it's fine. 
but you put 2.5 bars at Pike's Peak and your turbo has to spin an extra 100,000 RPM to create that pressure. And that's where you learn that the turbo has a hard limit on the RPM. That's where we added turbo speed sensors on all the turbos. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's one of the nice aspects with some of these newer performance-based turbos from the likes of Borg Warner with their EFR series and, and, and Garrett. You know, we do have, first of all, the ease of being able to fit a turbo speed sensor, which traditionally used to be a bit of a ball lake and require some some pretty intricate machining. Now there's just a nice little hole through the compressor cover and if you want to use it, you drill it out, add the sensor, job done. Uh, so that, that gives us an indication of where we are in the turbo speed and the manufacturers then give us a, a hard limit so we can make sure we stay under that. Uh, generally, if we do, all things being equal, the turbo's probably going to lead a fairly long and healthy life. Uh, the the bit that, again, it's sort of this Pike's Peak aspect, and it's not just Pike's Peak, it's altitude, but Pike's Peak sort of is the the most extreme of those events. And what what's easy to overlook is it's not just the boost pressure that the turbo cares about, it's actually the pressure race ratio. So that's the pressure at the compressor outlet divided by the pressure at the compressor inlet. And that inlet pressure, generally, give or take, is going to be barometric air pressure. So what I'm getting at here is, as we go from the from sea level to the start line of Pikes Peak, which I think was maybe around 9,000 feet, up to the summit, 14,000 feet, the barometric air pressure at the compressor inlet is continually dropping. So if we want to make the same boost pressure in the inlet manifold that we were seeing at sea level, we're basically working that turbo harder and harder at a continually higher pressure ratio and that also has an impact of where not just our turbo speed but where we're working on that compressor map as well so is is that another aspect where this compounding comes into it just again trying to keep turbo speed down and make sure we're in the efficiency of the compressor map at very high altitude of course yeah this is when you get deep into the turbocharging the the, the ratio is super important so we we keep uh, optimal location on the ratio mapping and we actually have a tuning that involves um, turbo speed limit, and we wastegate based on RPM, uh, based on altitude. So we change the RPM limit of the turbo uh, based on altitude, and we uh, manage the wastegate based on uh, turbo speed sensor. So we always okay. keep the optimal speed at the turbo, and since we have three turbo we can, as we uh, wastegate open, transfer the heat energy <laughs> to the following, to the next turbo. Um, keeping all the turbo always happy within their optimal speed, sense, uh, speed and, I mean, pressure ratio, because it's eventually, with the PDK, we use a, a small range of RPM. We focus uh, 6,200 6, RPM is like the extreme in the last gear when we do top speed only. But we focus on 4,800 RPM to 5,600 RPM. This is our power band. When you have this uh, narrowed down to the narrow band, we can just see what the turbo uh, likes to rev at for this particular uh, power band. And so we... <clears throat> 
it ended up being pretty easy to keep everything happy and performing super well at the best pressure ratio um, because our power band is almost like a thousand rpm only like or maybe 1500 rpm max versus yeah. a gasoline engine would have to be happy from 3000 to 10000 or i don't know whatever they they like to shift at in terms of the boost pressure at the inlet manifold, so forgetting about pressure ratio for a moment, uh, are you, you you've you've mentioned there about you know, turbo speed monitoring and changing that target versus altitude. So w- what's that actually doing in terms of your boost pressure in the inlet manifold? Are you trying to maintain that fairly consistent from the start line to the finish line, or are you are you dropping it away in order to make to uh, keep under the turbo speed limit as the altitude climbs. What I guess really the the question there is, are you trying to maintain a relatively consistent power level from the engine the whole way up the the hill climb, or do you do you get to a situation where you inevitably just have to let the power drop off a little bit at at higher altitude? We decided to keep focusing on the hard limits, such as EGT cylinder pressure. And intake pressure, we keep this a variable. We, it varies a little from start, start line to finish line. The physics uh, do change the numbers a lot, but the performance is the same. We find the engine to perform extremely well uh, from start to finish line. We don't have any losses. Our focus is on, on EGT and cylinder pressure. The intake can change some. That obviously affects the cylinder pressure, but in a good way. Uh, as we go up, temperature increases, and at the end of the run, you end up with a, a big temperature mass in the whole engine bay. Everything is really hot, and that's where you could uh, take advantage of a tiny bit less power. Uh, so everything works out to, to be perfect. <laughs> it's it's very very amazing. Let's talk about the PDK transmission because it sounds like it is really one of the key elements of making this package work given you've already talked about the the relatively narrow rev range that you're using and uh, this is a 7 speed transmission as well so hence tighter ratios than than if you had less gears so that all works in your favour. The, the the problem as I see it though is a modern dual clutch transmission regardless whether it's DSG, PDK or, or whatever it may be, the, there's some fairly complex two-way communications between the engine control module and the transmission control module for everything to, to work. So how, how, are you, how are you kind of communicating with that? Are you still using uh, the, the Porsche transmission control module or is it all aftermarket? Uh, so we use this uh, aftermarket uh, controller. It's it's from Poland, the GCU. So we communicate with CAN bus. So essentially, we have a small amount of data that go through this. We keep it as simple as possible. Uh, we have RPM, TPS, so I guess pedal position sensor and uh, torque. We have a compensation like. That's torque based, but we don't even use that anymore. Okay, so I mean, in a in a stock format, the, the dual clutch transmission 
simplified basically when you request an upshift and you're at full throttle uh, basically in, in most cases the gearbox controller will request a torque reduction from the engine control module so that it can complete the shift without potentially damaging the clutches once the clutches is engaged in the next gear then the gearbox controller will say to the engine control module all right we can go back to to full torque again and that's kind of how how that progresses we're on the other side of things when it downshifts obviously we need to to rev match and there's that same sort of requests there if you've got that same two-way communication and requests going on that i've just talked about with your aftermarket standalone option so we used to have this going so my engine ECU would send um, torque and RPM and also know when the gear would be uh, happening and we would have a, a torque reduction happen. But this actually didn't do any uh, benefits. So we got rid of it. The beauty of having a two liter is that it's a very tiny engine with not much mass. Uh, and the PDK can take all the abuse from from a two liter. It's still manageable. So essentially, torque reduction on an upshift not essential with the the actual torque you're putting through the PDK. Exactly. On the flip side of that, though, if we don't rev match on a downshift and get that that pretty pretty nicely matched, that can cause some problems with the likes of compression locking under braking as you're shifting down through the gears. Is is that just not an issue with the close ratio box? Are you, you're not attempting to rev match. So this this is like a, a, an issue with like the sequentials, um, but the PDK has so many gears that the gear change are happening so frequently that the the difference in RPM is almost negligible. So when I downshift the PDK is not getting a 5,000 RPM difference. It's getting a 1,000 RPM difference or 1,500. So it's so minimal that it's not getting affected by those, those shift. It's just so. In other words, you can essentially run the PDK almost completely independent of the engine and there's no real need for any torque uh, manipulation. That's right. In my, in my case, for my uh, RPM, usage for the TDI, it turns out to be a very good solution. Interesting. All right. You've got a new build that's underway. And from what I understand, it's it's up and running and, and it's going to be heading to Pikes Peak in June for the 100th running of the hill climb. Uh, this one it sounds like it's it's basically taken what you've learned so far with the, the bug and, and sort of... Uh, Put it on steroids. Uh, can tell us what your what your actually your platform is. I decided to move to the radical. It's a prototype chassis. It's also a mid engine. I was able to transfer the whole package from the bug and integrate it into the radical. It turns out to be almost four hundred pounds lighter than the bug. A, a lot more aerodynamic and. A lot better center of gravity. The radical is is a British uh, prototype cup that's that's very successful nowadays. I thought it would be a good chassis to to get into, and it turns out it is amazing. I I had my first laps. Uh, I was uh, blown away by the new performance. 
I mean, you you don't have to really reinvent anything when you're using that radical as a chassis because, as you mentioned, it, it's it's a, a very well understood and well developed package from Radical in the UK at this point. So essentially, it's just a case of bolting in an engine and PDK combination that you've already developed, and and you basically should be in a situation where you can hit the ground running. Now, we know that the theory is one thing, but reality is, is is often something slightly different. And there's always sort of unintended consequences or issues that pop up that that are hard to predict when you're in the planning stages of a project. I mean, I understand this is still fairly early on and uh, as we're recording, we've still probably got a a month or so to go before Pike's Peak actually runs. So you've got some testing to do, no doubt. Is there anything that's cropped up so far that that sort of, um, you know, you didn't didn't expect that's going to need some attention? Except the the new open, open cab. I mean, I'm just like open cockpit. It's it's a different preparation, I would say. I have to plan for a helmet that has a visor down. Um, it is, except the environment, like the car is surprisingly well dialed in um, because we didn't change too much from the original design. Uh, turns out those cars are designed for one driver and one passenger. And by moving to central seat and getting rid of all the stuff, for those two people who ended up with like very similar uh, weight distribution. And so far, uh, I'm, I'm not um, worried about anything um, catching the progress. So, I mean, no, nothing okay. nothing bad. Well, that's good. Yeah. That, that's, that's ideal. The dream scenario. In terms of weight, you mentioned you're 400 pounds under the weight of the bug, and we've sort of been talking about power. And you know, at this point, you've been talking about a 110 horsepower per cylinder, 440 horsepower for a four-cylinder engine. Uh, is that sort of where you're going to cap the power level for the radical, or are you pushing it further? And what was the final weight on the radical? The 440 horse was from last year. Uh, we opened that engine and found a brand new <laughs> everything so we're going to juice it up some yeah so the radical is already mind-blowing like much faster in any way it, it so i like to 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 do testing at the drag strip uh, it's it's weird but coming from france i did all the driving when i was uh, 18 peugeot 205 gti in the back roads like taking all those crazy turns those crazy roads like back country this is where I grew up. This is how I went to school. We raced. We almost died, and and we were crazy after this. So for me now, like the focus is not how to drive in those crazy twisted roads, is is how do you drive fast in between two turns? Which Pike's Peak is a lot of eight mile run in between two turns. It's perfect. So the drag, <laughs> when I go there, I I can simulate what it is between two of the spikes big turns it was like that was a perfect straight they are one eighth of a mile exactly and so i go there and do all the testing and this is where i get the the good data so give give us you've said you're going to pump the power level up a little bit have you got an an idea in mind of where that's going to end up Uh, we're shooting for just five percent so we're going to crank up the uh, fuel amount it will affect the cylinder pressure, but it's taking it. We're going to to touch the, the timing to keep 
the 5% increase in power directed in the cylinder, not in the EGTs. EGTs were capped. So this is So where does that require you to advance the, the injection timing exactly. so that the, the combustion event is happening earlier in the cycle? That's the beauty of this is we just move the power where we want because you can choose now with a cylinder pressure sensor. Uh, we're going to send 5 more percent in the, in the head and it's brand new now after so much abuse, so it will take it. There's no, no doubt. You've had you've had a, a a bit of experience at Pikes Peak already, and you've got a combination that should be lighter, more powerful, better balanced, and much more aerodynamic. Um, are we allowed some predictions on on where you see your your final time coming in, and is that diesel world record within reach? So I, in twenty twenty, I was a second away from the, the record, and that was with your brake problems. Yeah, so they did 11.24, and it was 11.25 with a minute and a half of, of no brakes. In 2021, I went there with good brakes, and I did a calculated 10.09, which was more representative of my, my performance. And that was with a bug and with brakes. And so now I have all the radical package. It's much faster, uh, just better experience about the track also. I've been racing this thing so much that now I know the track by heart almost. Uh, I mean, <laughs> as much as I can. There's still little turns that I need to work on, but I think this is what the testing is for. So no actual number prediction? I mean, I'm guessing from what you've said there, it should be well into the nines. Uh, Nine-minute club, that's what we hope for. Okay. Nine meter club is is pretty respectable, especially for TDI engine. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. I think um, get, getting sub ten minutes is is respectable, irrespective of of what you've got powering the vehicle. So, um, you know that that's going to be a, a huge accomplishment. Look, Greg, I think we'll we'll move towards uh, wrapping this thing up, and we've got three questions at the end. We like to ask all of our guests, and uh, the the first of those is, what's next in in the future for you and Box Air? I mean, obviously, we've just talked about in the very near future, you've got Pikes Peak twenty twenty two, but beyond that, sort of, uh, yeah, where do you see life headed for you? Well, motorsports related. Um, we have this second radical chassis with a new transmission. So we're going with a Lamborghini Hurricane Audi R8 Quattro. So it's a mid-engine dual clutch, but instead of being a rear-wheel drive only, going four-wheel drive. And uh, that, that's going to be key for Pikes Peak in the future to get this amazing traction out of the airpins. Because right now we have a boost per gear and power per per gear to traction control. Because the first, second, and third are struggling to stay on track because of being a huge grade, being called the track. So four wheel drive is going to be a, a big benefit in the future, right? All right. Given given your career and everything you've you've sort of done so far, from from body work to overland and Pikes Peak adventures, building and modifying and tuning these uh, turbo diesel engines, is there any advice that you could give to maybe the the sixteen year old version of yourself to to maybe fast track your career and maybe avoid some of the pitfalls you've seen? Wow. 
So it's tricky there because if I had to give an advice, it would be to probably go look for a good tuner, a reputable tuner that can help you. But that also requires a ton of money when you're young. So the learning the hard way path was fun. Uh, It was pretty costly, uh, probably more than a tuner. But I learned also deeper by doing the mistakes myself. Um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't really know. Um, wouldn't ch- wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, I like I like to learn <laughs> the hard way. I don't know. I, it's it brings you somewhere else than the regular path. I do think that while it can be an expensive learning curve, sometimes I mean mistakes or finding limits. I would I should say maybe more so than mistakes is kind of natural when you're pushing the boundaries and there should be no disrespect for that happening. Obviously we need to learn from those mistakes so that they don't repeatedly happen. Uh, but yeah that 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 can teach you so much more than uh, than just having a smooth plain sailing where nothing ever goes wrong. So I, I've I've experienced that particularly with my drag racing, and and much like you, I, I don't think I'd change anything. It it broadened my own experience, and and I learned more from the odd uh, experience that went wrong than I probably did from from those that just always went right. Now, our last question for today, Greg, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, uh, where can they do so? Have you got some social media uh, options for them to, to follow along, uh, your website, etc.? We have the Instagram, uh, Boxier underscore. That's, uh, we post regularly about the progress, Pikespeak, and all the overlanding stuff, turbo diesel, triple turbo pictures. YouTube, we try to keep up with that. And we have a, actually a videographer this year uh, that makes a full documentary of the whole build. So uh, we'll have a pretty epic video of chopping up the radical chassis, welding the new thing and doing the testing, breaking stuff, keep going, and uh, hopefully winning Pikes Peak, Diesel Record. Facebook also has a page, the box here. Perfect. Well, we'll put some links to those locations in the show notes for people to be able to easily follow. It's been great to chat there, Greg. Great to get some insight into uh, your experience so far. I'm definitely excited to see what you can do in that radical. And I know there is going to be a bit more competition in the diesel uh, diesel market at Pikes Peak. And uh, so ho- hopefully you uh, hope you got some competition to keep you honest. We'll see how things work out. But uh, yeah, all, all the best for Pikes Peak this year. And uh, we'll see where you come out, hopefully in that nine-minute club with a record. Oh, thank you so much. And yeah, I'll try to keep it on the track and put that nine-minute club time. No problem. All right, we'll talk again soon. Cheers, Greg. Cheers. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 70 
$75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.